Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Office of Communications. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med. Diabetes, obesity, cancer, heart disease. For so many of the diseases that millions of people struggle with, nutrition can be a critically important factor. In this week's Voices of UMass Med, we are diving into nutrition and the huge impact it has on our health and well-being. Joining us is registered dietitian Barbara Olensky. Barbara is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Preventive and Behavioral Medicine and the director of the Center for Applied Nutrition here at UMass Medical School. Barbara, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Happy to have this conversation. Today we want to talk with you about your clinical work as a nutritionist and how that has led to promising research to um, find nutritional approaches to help people who have chronic diseases. And one of those chronic diseases would be irritable bowel disease. Or oh. inflammatory bowel. Inflammatory bowel Right, disease. which yeah. is a little bit different than irritable okay. bowel, although they do have um, similar symptoms and characteristics. What are some um, of those symptoms that people really struggle with? Not sure about your audience, but it has to do with the bowels and stooling and urgency and debilitating symptoms that can prevent somebody from living a good life and reaching their potential. Mm -hmm. And so um, talk about, uh, there must be a variety of treatments for these, but talk about nutrition specifically and how you've found that can impact. It's interesting because there are not any established clinical dietary guidelines for inflammatory bowel disease. And most of the gastroenterologists, with some exceptions, believe and have been trained that it doesn't matter what the patient eats and they're often told simply to choose what doesn't irritate them. And this gets at the acute response of food or the texture of food could have to do also with the absorption of food, all of which can be compromised with inflammatory bowel disease. There's also a systemic effect of food that is well known in such as heart disease and diabetes, and it's absolutely applicable to inflammatory bowel disease and also to situations of irritable bowel disease and other types of GI concerns. So it sounds like patients would really have to do a lot of trial and error based on their own experience to find out what works. And that's what's been happening thus far and what it can lead to is a very narrow diet that doesn't reach their nutritional recommendations for their immune system. They become weaker and a little more susceptible to symptoms and disease. So what we've done is develop a diet that we call the IBD-AID, the IBD anti-inflammatory diet. And this is directed at changing components of the microbiome. The microbiome is a system of bacteria, the good guys, the bad guys, the in-between guys, <laughs> and how they react with each other and individually to produce substances that can either assist us with our health or can lead us in the other direction, which can be debilitating. So um, let's talk about that. You're a co-investigator on a pilot study working with UMass Medical School's Center for Microbiome Research. So what was the question that you set out to try to answer? The question is, can we change the microbiome through diet? Is there an easy answer? <laughs> the easy answer is yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So what does that mean? And, and tell us about the study and how you went about 
reaching that conclusion? So we're just reaching the end of the study where we're just recruiting our final patients and we do have some preliminary data on the microbiome of five of the initial patients. What we find, and other researchers have found the same, so it's building on worldwide enthusiasm and passion in this area, which is just sort of blowing us all away. Um, what we have found is that the diet can change the microbiome to one that is more beneficial for inflammatory conditions. So does the microbiome actually help to reduce the amount of inflammation in the GI tract? Yes. Yeah. So the bacteria produce substances that help to reduce the inflammation, also to improve nutrient absorption and other things. So what does that diet look like? It's not an easy diet, but in patients who are desperate, I find them amazingly willing to assume almost anything to improve the quality of their lives. And it really speaks and to how that, disruptive oh, these diseases can be to live with. It's, uh, I have patients who have their offices built into the bathrooms who can't eat when they go to work because they can't exist if they've had anything to eat. Um, and a lot of people on disability. So what do we do? We cut out particular foods that we believe to be feeding adverse bacteria. The bacteria die off and we replace them. It's three parts add, one part subtract. Prebiotic foods, probiotic foods, good nutrition that satisfies all the nutrient requirements of adults and children, and avoidance. And it's interesting that most of our patients up till now are better at avoiding foods than they are at adding foods that may be unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. So can you give us a for instance of, um, of what the diet might look like on a daily basis for someone in this trial? For instance, they have to give up wheat, corn, sugar, lactose. Those are pretty ubiquitous in our society. They're everywhere. So you would think that somebody would just have a narrow diet, but what we really do is we encourage intake of particular foods such as whole oats or steel-cut oats, which have prebiotic properties, meaning that they feed and encourage the growth of these beneficial bacteria that produce short-chain fatty acids that key into cytokines, and that helps to manage inflammatory processes. We stage the diet according to the patient's ability and absorption. And so there are three stages. Phase one is when the patient is in a flare or unable to really tolerate foods that are intact. So we sort of bring the patient back to what I think of as baby gut. We start over again and then build up. And so there are pureed foods, blenderized soft foods in phase one. Also we limit certain foods that require more of the digestive enzymes in phase two, it's like an interim phase, and in phase three, they can tolerate those intact foods. And how long is the process of sort of rebuilding somebody's microbiome to it help fight happen, inflammation? Changes can happen in the microbiome within a day. Really? I have seen patients that within two weeks have had all cessation of urgent stools, and that is huge. To heal a patient is a question that we're exploring in research. This is a very, very tricky disease, and it tends to increase and decrease. It's the nature of the immune system, and there's also an interplay with genetics. We also see that there's an impact of stress 
on this disease. So there are many things we just can't control aside from putting what you put into your mouth. So some of those outcomes you um, mentioned are pretty striking to have symptoms, you know, symptom relief within days or weeks. Um, I'm wondering, this seems to me like it would be the kind of diet somebody would have to stick with possibly for the rest of their life. Is that true, first of all? And sort of the knock on all diets is that it, they're really hard for people to stick with. So they is that are. what you find with this particular diet? Uh, we find that, yes, it's difficult for people to stick to. Um, people are motivated by their well-being. Um, after we reach remission or maintenance, the goal is, to, is sort of an 80-20 diet which is the nature of most healthy diets in that 80% of the time you want to do the right thing, choose the right foods, and then 20% of the time you might have a birthday cake or go out to eat and have something that truly isn't good. What we find is that patients can tolerate some foods better than others that are not on the diet, um, and also that people learn their way through over the years, that there are certain foods that they really don't want to go back to because they cause these debilitating symptoms. Is this highly personalized? Is it different for every patient that in the study so far? It's not highly personalized in that there is a particular protocol, dietary pattern that we follow, but we do customize it to each individual. It's the same as what I might do for the American Heart Association diet. I customize that to the individual and how their different components of the lipid profile might be. So um, I think you said enrollment is closing. Mm -hmm. What comes next for you uh, in terms of this study or this research? I think what comes next is we expand the diet to a larger uh, population of people. We are looking into the prevention of inflammatory bowel disease in pregnant women with their babies. We have seen that there is a trigger of the immune system in utero, and if we can change the diets of the pregnant women, we may be able to prevent inflammatory bowel disease. That statement just leaves me stunned. I don't know if I'll see it in my lifetime, but that's the direction the research is going. Interesting. And so for anybody listening who maybe has struggled with in inflammation or some kind of bowel disease, where can they learn more about this? We do have a website, umassmed.edu backslash nutrition. And so there are a number of, uh, we also have a bunch of cardiovascular recipes, diabetes recipes, inflammatory bowel disease, information and recipes, how to begin how to continue. We have a variety of cooking classes that we offer over here in the Shaw Building. Um, and I correspond with any number of people. We have a newsletter that goes out too. So anybody listening now who wanted to learn more either about the IBD diet or your ongoing research or nutrition in general can find it at that website? Sure. Okay, umassmed.edu slash nutrition. You're listening to Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of the University of Massachusetts Medical School. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I will. So um, you mentioned probiotics, prebiotics, and there are so many commercially available probiotic, you know, foods in the supermarkets that say that they're good, 
you know, have healthy probiotics in them. Mm -hmm. What do you think of all those? As a consumer, should we? Um, I think we should embrace it. Yeah. I am really excited about what's happening in terms of probiotic foods. Fermented foods have been a part of our civilization uh, from the beginning. It's what we had before we had refrigeration. Um, I think where we need to be careful is in the processing of these foods, destroying the beneficial bacteria that are a part of the process. So, um, and I've often seen people, we, the same is true of supplemental probiotics, that sometimes what you're buying is an empty bottle. It doesn't contain anything that's still alive. I do encourage patients to get a variety, and that's key. It's not one probiotic that I know of that's going to solve the problem. There isn't sort of a magic bullet out there. We need to get a variety. They work together like a family does, supporting the each other. The various probiotics. The various bacteria work together. And so how would somebody... Um, you know, know whether the products that they're buying or the foods that they're eating are sort of quote-unquote working for them. Is it really just how you feel and how, how much energy you have throughout the day? It is how you feel. It depends on what your, um, your goal is. We've also seen that the probiotics are a part of weight loss and metabolism. So there are various ways that these are going to come in to play. It's also about the balance. If one continues to consume foods that are thought to be adverse and not consume foods that are beneficial, that is a problem. You can't just get rid of all the bad foods. You need to continue to eat the ones that are protective. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, um, how did you start, how did your interest in nutrition begin? And then through the years, the, your interest in using nutrition and diet as really a way to combat illness. I think it started for me when my second son was born and had a number of troubles. I had to change my diet while I was breastfeeding him and it worked. I wanted to look into it further. I had some of my own autoimmune conditions and I've been researching it ever since. And were you already a trained nutritionist at that time? No, I my first degree is in fine arts. I was making pottery. <laughs> That's quite a transition. So what were some of the things, if you, to the extent that you're willing to share, that you were struggling with at that time? Raising two kids, not being able to face the school bus because my face was so swollen. I had my own autoimmune problems. I saw a nutritionist at that point who helped to guide me in the right direction, and it gave me my life back. And I decided right then and there that I needed to learn everything I could. Wow in order to give this to others. So what did you do? Tell us about that path. Started working at a health food store, went back to school, got the degrees. Um, I was hired into research. I've loved research ever since. I also do clinical care, and now I have the pleasure of teaching. And, and then how did that lead you into some of these specific diseases like inflammatory bowel disease? The inflammatory bowel disease, I tend to get people in my clinic uh, sent to me when they have failed other therapies. And so one such patient landed in my clinic and I was instructed by the gastroenterologist to give this patient a diet that was developed in the 50s. And I did so even though I thought the diet was crazy and it worked. The patient got better and so the research part of me kicked in. I wanted to know why and so I have 
based my diet, the IBD-8, on a specific carbohydrate diet, but we've updated. We now include um, changes in fatty acids that's come from my research in cardiovascular health, um, looking into the glycemic index, changing the textures of foods. There's various components, but it is actually based on that patient years ago who did well with a specific carbohydrate diet. It must be fascinating but also challenging because nutritional information is changing all the time as we learn new things. It is, it's changing all the time. The marketplace is changing and there, every time we come up with a new diet, the industry is gonna come up with a new way of presenting it. And it, such as gluten-free, a lot of times you'll have a patient go on a gluten-free diet and it doesn't really help if they're eating all these processed gluten-free foods some of the components that they're using glow in the dark. They're not good for people. And it, it may be gluten-free, but it doesn't mean it's a good food. It doesn't mean it's healthy. And it doesn't mean it's good for the gut either. Okay, so let's um, speak a little bit more broadly now. Are there sort of some general nutritional principles that, that you think everyone should sort of live by? And then I'm gonna ask you to share what do you eat in a typical day? Oh, that's very <laughs> sneaky. Okay, um, so general principles is to eat cleanly. Food that um, doesn't have too many ingredients in it that you understand, um, to drink plenty of water, that's really important. Exercise is, and circulation is important. Stress reduction, loving family, um, all of those components of a good life go into a healthy dietary lifestyle. Um, Taking your lunch is very helpful because if you always have food with you, you're less susceptible to what the environment has to offer. So you want to be able to choose from your environment. You don't want to be so desperately hungry and faced with something that you know is not good for so you. The snack drawer in my office is probably not a good we'll idea. We'll go check that out <laughs> after. That's my confession. So now I am curious, so what does a registered dietitian eat on a daily basis? Well, I don't know about other people. Um, and I think it's also interesting that my dog has inflammatory bowel disease um, and she is on a special diet. Um, so we cook up our oat groats, which is fabulous. It's not like oatmeal and you can cook them up savory and you can put a little Italian dressing and some parsley and tomatoes and you have tabbouleh. They're filling, they're good for weight loss. They're really can last with your energy. You're not hungry two hours later. So the oats are definitely a part of our dietary lifestyle. I am pescatarian. I don't eat animal foods. Um, that I started years ago and just never went back. Um, what we feed our animals that we raise commercially is a problem. We're starting to go for more of the like grass fed and, and that changes who the animal is. Same thing with eggs. Um, come from chickens that have been fed a beneficial diet, it changes the fatty acid composition of the egg, and that's a different type of egg than so one. So if people have access to those kinds of foods and can afford them, you, you would recommend them? Oh, definitely. Okay. Sometimes they're not that expensive. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're quite readily available. Sometimes you sit in the food store and you're looking at two packages wondering if there's really a marked enough difference to warrant buying one versus the less expensive. That's maybe. true, and people do have to make choices for financial reasons. That's a huge barrier. Mm -hmm. So what are some other healthy foods that we vegetables. should incorporate? Absolutely vegetables, and that is the basis, the non-starchy vegetables in particular. 
of the nutrients that we need to survive. It's what gives your immune system the boost, it what gets you through the day. It's a matter of making them tasty, available, and prevalent. And so that's the foundation, our vegetables. From there we build. How in tune do you think we are as a society with nutrition? I think we're getting better. <laughs> I don't think nutrition has enough respect in clinical care. There are certain physicians and who believe in it, and yet it's, it's a moving science. We still have a lot to prove, and that's why research is so very important, but not necessarily well-funded through NIH. We're starting to see in some places um, physicians prescribing foods maybe instead of a prescription medicine. So would you like to see more of that? You think that's a worthwhile I thing? I would if we could train the physicians better in nutrition. If they're basing their prescription on what they have tried in their own lives, it's not necessarily evidence-based nutrition. So I'd like to see a lot more of that, but at this point we don't really have nutrition education in medical school. Before we wrap up, let's give some folks some examples of healthy snacks that uh, our nutritionist recommended. Okay, um, I think we ought to have more food than you can possibly eat in a day that you carry with you. Cucumbers, avocados, um, nuts and seeds. There's some delicious little flatbread crackers available from Trader Joe's that I really enjoy. Um, fruit, vegetables, really not going for the carbohydrates too much in the middle of the day because uh, if you have any type of insulin resistance, it's going to put you to sleep. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to keep eating slump. and eating and eating to keep your energy up, and that doesn't lead anybody anywhere. But a good takeaway that I've heard you mention a couple times, keep food with you. Keep food with you. So it's always what you want to eat, what you should be eating, right. and it's readily available. Barbara, thank you so much for your time. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. This is all important information that we can really work into our daily lives. You've been listening to registered dietitian Barbara Olenski. Barbara is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Preventive and Behavioral Medicine and the director of the Center for Applied Nutrition at UMass Medical School. Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the Office of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Visit our website at umassmed.edu news where you can find all of our podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at UMass Med, on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School, and on Twitter at UMass Medical. Mm -hmm.